Now, we're going to deal with this word commission. Webster defined, there are actually about seven different uh, definitions with several sub-definitions of the word commission, um, depending on context. But Webster is going to give two in particular that I wanted to dial down on. It's going to say a formal written warrant granting the power to perform various acts or duties. That's one definition. Another one, uh, the authority to act for in behalf of or in place of another. Now, I want you to hear that one again. The authority to act for in behalf of or in place of another person. Now, there is a difference between power, the ability to do something, and authority, the right to do something. And what Jesus is going to give the disciples in this story is both. He's going to give them power to get some things done, and he's also going to give them, he's going to deputize them in a certain way. He will commission them and give them the authority or the right to do those things. Matthew 28, the very last two verses of this, uh, um, this gospel. By the way, next week we'll be in Matthew 26. But if you were to read all the way to Matthew 28, the last two verses of Matthew 28 give you and I a commission. It was the same in, in a different sense, similar to theirs. But it gives us this formal written charge to make disciples. Now, let me give you a little bit of background. We've talked about the Gospel of Matthew a little bit. I won't go to there. But we're going to talk about the, the choosing of the 12 disciples. They had already by this time had significant exposure to Jesus' work and his message. Several disciples that are mentioned in Matthew 10 met Jesus right after his baptism uh, uh, by John. And they probably witnessed his first miracle. Uh, that you and I see recorded in John 2. Some think that Jesus met Peter and John and Andrew um, around that time when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan. And some think that those three guys in particular, probably including also James, the brother of John, went back to work in Capernaum. Now, they would have been in Judea. They went back to work in Capernaum, um, attending their nets. And it's interesting because Jesus calls eight more and then gets to these guys when they get back to the Sea of Galilee. And you can read about this in Luke 5 when he says to them, guys, it's time to leave your nets and become fishers of men. And they join the group. Uh, that's an interesting thought. And I, I kind of like that thought because that, I've always tried to figure out uh, the, the sequence of events of, okay, why did he call them then, but then he calls them? Anyway, so uh, that's at least one thought on that one. I'm going to give you some detail on each of the disciples in, in a little bit. Now, um, so um, they had witnessed Jesus' teachings before. Somewhere during this campaign, Matthew the tax collector accepted the call. We read about him in Matthew 9. As, as Jesus' mission grew, he urges them to pray. Notice what he urges them to pray for. We're going to look at the last two verses of chapter 9, and then we'll start in chapter 10 in just a minute. Okay? Look at the last two verses of chapter 9. <clears throat> He's going to say, 
He said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. Isn't it interesting that Jesus didn't command you and me? Now, this is going to sound heretical. Jesus didn't command you and me to pray for the lost. Not a bad idea. But he commanded us to pray for what at the end of nine? Workers. He commanded us to pray for disciples, for those who would tend the harvest. So that's the context of what we're going to study today. Now, Cindy, can I ask you, to, in the absence of your husband, can I ask you to read verse 1, 2, 3, and 4 out of Matthew 10? Okay, there's a list. We're going to talk about the list in a minute. Dan, can I prevail on you to go back over, go over to the right to John 14, 12. We're going to read that in just a minute. Okay, now, so we said, and here's what goes in your blank. We said that this is the fulfillment, as he's calling them, it's the fulfillment of his previous prayer about workers in the kingdom, workers in the harvest, okay? So he begins to call them. So he calls them and he gives them authority. Now, what, what I've got to deal with a little bit is what is, the, what is the scope of the authority he gives them? Now, listen to 610. This is right in the middle of what you and I call the Lord's Prayer. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There is a kingdom component to what he's going to call them to do. We'll, we'll unpack that a little more as we go on. But the idea here is, as expressed by Matthew in his writing, is he gives them this authority to do all of these things as evidence that the kingdom has come. Listen to what he promises now. He's going to promise them this for after he leaves. He's going to say, it's better for you if I go away. And he gives them Another sense of authority in John 14, 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works of these will he do, because I go to the Father. Okay. You're going to do greater things than I do. You know they had to be jaw-dropped at that or just wag their head and say, no way. We have watched you. Do all these things. Now, it's interesting. Even while he was still here, he gave them authority in this. He's calling them and getting ready to send them out. And he gives them the authority to do. What's the scope? How much are, is he allowing them and giving them the authority and the power to do that he's been doing? How much? Every bit of it. Up to and including casting out of demons. Interesting. Defeating the devil up to and including resurrection. Wow. And by the way, they've seen him do that. Gives them the authority to do the full scope 
of what he has been doing, they give him the authority, he gives them the authority to do. Now, in verse 2, there is a unique word that's used. It's only used twice in, in this sequence, okay? So the 12 apostles is only used here and in, uh, did I, I didn't put the reference. You might want to write it down. Revelation 21, 14, those two words are used together in that way too. The 12 apostles. The unique word here that's used you notice he's been talking about disciples, and we think about them being disciples. But in verse 2, it says, now the names of the 12 apostles are, and it begins that list. We'll kind of deal with that list. It is used, um, uh, the idea is one who is sent. Go with me just quickly. Take, take your Bible and go to the right to John 13. The same word is used, but it's translated. It's kind of defined for us there. John 13, I'm going to read verse 16. Okay? John 13, 16. Listen to how this, because the same word comes, comes in here. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent, one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. So that phrase that's translated, one who is sent, is the same word that's used here in Matthew 10 as apostle, one who is sent. It kind of um, the Gospels define the word for us. So he's going to send them, and now we want to unpack a little bit um, uh, the order of things. Now, um, uh, Cindy read the list from, from this passage. I want you to go with me to Mark. Let's compare Mark's list. Same guys. Okay, different order, a little bit, and we'll talk about that some, okay? So go to Mark 3. Somebody, if you would, pick up at verse 16 and read down through 19. Thank you for working through through that. Okay, so um, uh, because a lot of those names are names that we don't hear every day, right? Okay, let me let me give you just some facts as you compare those two. Now, there's a list. There are four listings of the twelve in the Bible. One in Matthew ten that we're studying today. Mark three that we just read. Luke six. Okay, and there's another one that lacks Judas in Acts one thirteen. Okay, so there. They're four different lists. They're pretty consistent, but they're a little different. Uh, the names in the verse before us are always the top four in those lists. So it's always um, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Always the first four. Okay, That seems to indicate, you would think at least, their relative importance to the other eight. Simon Peter is always listed first. Always probably acknowledges his leadership among uh, all the rest. The order of the other three varies from list to list. Peter, James, and John are sometimes referred to as Jesus' inner circle. 
they saw some things that the others didn't get to see. Can you think of anything? Transfiguration. The, tent, uh, the mount of, They went up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember, Peter wanted to, you know, build three sheds and let's stay up here. Okay, that was Peter, James, and John. What else did they see that maybe the others didn't see? They got to see a couple of resurrections that the other guys may not have seen. Uh, well, certainly they all saw him. Peter was the only one that got kind of actively involved in that one, Karen, um, before he uh, started to sink. Okay, so they got, so there's kind of an inner circle there. Um, now, the pattern repeats as the fifth and ninth names are the same every time. Now, I find that interesting. I don't know why. Number five and number nine are always the same. Okay. Um, while six through eight and 10 through 12 swap places sometimes. So that those two triads swap occasionally uh, in these. Um, Judas the betrayer is in uh, is listed, always listed last, and not at all in Acts. He's off the scene by then. Okay. Yeah, Ron, I like that. Well, yeah, I like that. Uh, do what? What was it? Last in, first out. Last in, first out. Okay. <laughs> Spoken like a true accountant. All right. Um, now, all of the listings, okay, except for that one where Judas is left out, uh, fall into thirds, okay, four names each. So four triads, they all kind of are listed in four triads, okay? Now, we've read through, um, through four, so let's talk a little bit about each of these guys. Some Philip is the only other apostle who has a Greek name. Now, Andrew is one of them. Both of those guys have a Greek name. He's from Bethsaida, uh, the hometown of some of the others. Um, his name always appears fifth. The names of the other three apostles known, noted here in verse 3, Philip, uh, Bartholomew, and Thomas, and, and, and Matthew, um, uh, the other three um, vary in appearing in the sixth to the eighth positions. Bartholomew is generally identified as Nathaniel. You read about him in John 1. Otherwise, he's not mentioned in the New Testament except in those lists. Thomas, what do we typically call him? Doubting. Doubting Thomas. Interesting. He was actually quite bold in a lot of times, but if you can read about him in John 20, he's the one who said, I'm not going to believe he's, he has risen from the dead until I see it for myself. And there's this wonderful um, uh, exchange between him and Jesus in John 20. Uh, now, Matthew's list is the only list. I find this interesting. Matthew's the only list of the four in which Matthew is designated a tax collector, a despised profession, and it's him who writes the list, uh, this list. I find that interesting. He kind of indicts himself in some way. All right? James, the son of Alphaeus, appears in the ninth position every time. The word James appears more than 40 times in the New Testament, so it's important that we kind of give him a, a kind of a surname or another designation. The, the New Testament refers to as many uh, as five different men by the name of James. So most of us think that this James is James the Younger that's talked about in, in Mark 15, uh, uh, where there he's identified, at least in my 
in my translation of the scriptures as James the Less, um, or you might call him Jimmy Light. Okay. His mother, by the way, was at the uh, empty tomb. Kind of cool. Identified there in Mark 15. Okay. Now, okay, you learn a little bit. I, I had to. The only thing we know of Thaddeus is the question he asked in John 14. Um, he asked um, um, a question there. And then there's another Judas, uh, son of James, uh, identified in Luke 6 here, um, uh, and Simon the Zealot, okay? Judas Iscariot, obviously, is the uh, one infamous for uh, betraying Jesus. Now, the collective identity of the 12 is really more significant than their individual biographies, although I find it a fascinating study to try to find out things about them, how they died, what, what they did, what they accomplished uh, that is not in the Bible. You can find some of those things. Uh, by the way, an expert on that. He's not here, but I'll throw him under the bus. An expert on what happened to the 12 is Ed Abel. He was fascinated with that study and studied all kinds of things about what happened with the 12. Um, he's taught that a few times, and I've been in on some of that. Okay, all are close associates of Jesus. That's what's important. They are familiar with his lifestyle and his teaching and his methods, and they're well prepared and continue to do and expand his work. So that's the idea. Um, verse 2 through 4 um, gives the list in order, at least in Mark's order, and we looked at those other orders. Now, let's see what they're commissioned to do. Louise, can I prevail on you? Let's go to verse 5 and read down through 12. Through 12, yeah. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belt. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or staff. For the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greetings. Does verse 5 bother you a little bit? in context of other things that Jesus has both said and done. Does it bother you a little bit? It, it, I've got to kind of come to terms with why he would say, don't go to the Gentiles, don't go to the Samaritans. Does Jesus love, does God love Gentiles and Samaritans? Yep. Absolutely. Yep. In the Great Commission that we talked about at the end of the book, Matthew 28, and also in Acts 1.8, he acknowledges, he says, this is how you're going to do it. And it includes going specifically to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Okay. Now, in Jesus' day, Gentiles are just non-Jews. Anybody that's a non-Jew. Samaritan, a, a Samaritan is a particular kind of that um, who's kind of a, an intermingling between uh, the northern ten tribes and the Assyrians or other groups of people. Jesus hung out a lot with Gentile people. And they're included in both the Great Commission and in the restating of it in Acts 1.8. So, um, 
what I've, what I've got to come to terms with is there's no discrimination here. Okay? But um, that has yet to unfold. And we're going to begin, he says, with what he identifies as the lost children of Israel. That's part of his strategy. We're going to start here first. Now, uh, if you need some evidence, um, he visits with Gentiles in 828. Um, he um, ventures into their territory in, in chapter 8. Um, you have read the story of Jesus uh, evangelizing, changing, radically changing the life of the woman at the well at John 4 who was a Samaritan in Samaria, which is where he was right then. So we know that there's no discrimination here. This is a matter of strategy, part of, part of his strategy of how they're going to disseminate the gospel message. Okay, now let's talk about the message. It hasn't changed. It didn't change throughout his entire ministry. Let's read it. Okay, what was the message here in verse 7? He says, okay, says, here's what you're to preach. The kingdom of God is within you. He says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All right? Now, that's kind of the idea. Uh, very pethy, short, uh, at hand. All right? So, the message hadn't changed. Look at chapter 3. Now, in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Hmm, heard that before. All right? Actually, you heard it first there, right? Okay, let's look also at 417. Same page, across the page of my Bible. All right? He says, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So there's the message. The message didn't change. I read a story this week um, about text messaging. Does everybody in here do text messaging? Amen. Uh, Joe doesn't. Joe, I love you, man. Uh, you're my kind of guy. Stan Harrison made me start text messaging. Do you remember that? I wasn't doing it. For, I, I was a holdout. And Stan said, no, I'm going to teach you how to do it. And he sent me it. Anyway, and the, it's been terrible ever since. Then. Stan, sorry. So, um, uh, the use of abbreviations such as LOL, What's that one? Laugh out loud. Laugh out loud. I, used to, I used to think it meant, you know, loads of love or something like that. And that didn't quite fit in context of what people were sending me. Um, uh, IMO. What's IMO? In my opinion. Okay, so you used to, use, you used to sell, sell cell phones. So you've you got to know this stuff. All right? IMO. Yeah, okay. Well, there's, a, there's a ton of them. All right? SMH. Shaking my head. I. That was one that I almost never figured out. I, I thought somebody was just saying, Sum. <laughs> Sum. I thought, well, that's just, who says that, you know? Shaking my head. Okay, now, the story I read is from New Zealand, from the Department of Ed in New Zealand. They ordered that students should not be penalized for answering test questions using text speak. In New Zealand, okay. While they're still encouraging students to use standard English, authorities instructed teachers to give total credit when the answer shows the required understanding. These educators argue that text speak is just another way to communicate. 
and I want to put on the board, R-U-C-R-U-R-E-S. Are you serious? But <laughs> the apostles' message, are you ready for this? 26 characters, five words in Greek. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Pretty short message. Uh, you know, they were working two by two. I don't think any of them had to look at the other guy, their partner, and say, hey, what was the message again? I really don't think they had to do that. I, I don't think they had to, you know, text Jesus back and say, uh, give us a message again. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. Now, uh, I find that really intriguing. It just hasn't changed. Now, he's going to give them some some illustrations here, or some, some instructions here, not illustrations. Beginning in verse 8, they're not to be paid for their ministry. Again, they're given the, we're given here the scope of all of Jesus' work that they are given the authority to do, including resurrection. Um, which I think is interesting because if I understand this correctly, when John ask the question, how will I know that you're the one? What they're doing is the answer to the question. Go with me to John, uh, go with me to Matthew 11. So just across the page, I'm going to start at verse 2. Now when John, while in prison, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? Listen to Jesus' answer. Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. So the idea is this is an indication that the kingdom is here. But they're supposed to not be, at this point at least, they're going to get room and board but not to be paid for their ministry. Verse 9, they're to pack light. Okay, not even a carry-on. You don't need much. You're going to be dependent on the... It's interesting how 8 and 9 interplay, interact. Uh, verse 8 and verse 9. Don't take anything with you, but you're not taking pay either. You'll be taken care of as you go, and there's an element of faith here. Again, um, uh, they're just... Supposed to pack very lightly. Now, does verse 10 contradict verse 8? Look at verse 10. He says, Don't take a bag for your journey, even two coats or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worthy of his support. And yet in verse 8, he says, Don't take any money. Freely, you've been freely given, freely give. I don't think so. I, what I think here is uh, uh, probably what we're dealing with is. Um, um, uh, the idea that they're to be dependent on their faith, they're to be dependent on those with whom they reside, and we'll read about them in verse 11. They're to look for a worthy host. Now, by worthy, we're not talking about some kind of a spiritual condition here or a spiritual uh, uh, delineation, but a person who's receptive or a home who's receptive. They're saying, Stay there. Now, if you look at verse 8 with what all they're going to be doing, does it stand to reason that if 
if they set up a base of operations in this home because these people were receptive to them, does it stand to reason that somewhere along the way, somebody more wealthy, more connected, and having a nicer place would offer them a place to stay? They got better chow over there. And yet Jesus says, don't do it. I find that really intriguing. Stay where you start, he says. Um, do what? Bloom where you're planted. Uh, it's interesting. I, I hadn't really thought about that till this week. About Well, they were probably offered all kinds of things after they're doing healings and all this other stuff. Stay at this. Uh, Robert Coleman, in his, his classic work on evangelism, which calls this part of the instruction, he said, establish a beachhead and stay there. He uses a military term. Establish a beachhead and, and work from there your whole time in that town. Now, their approach, verse 12, is to be a positive, to be positive. They're, they're to give door-to-door -door blessings. Uh, Ron and I were gone doing some errands yesterday, came back, and some folks had come to our, our door with a blessing. It was literally, they were, we haven't been in our home very long, and they were advertising, the local church was advertising kind of all they do. We were kind of impressed with what all they put um, on our door. Paul, you'd be happy to know they were Southern Baptists, and they were going door to door. Does that surprise you a lick? No. Uh, but I wish we'd have been there to talk to them. So first of all, so they know we weren't going to hell to start with, but, but uh, to appreciate them for what they did. They were blessing us, even though we weren't there. So, so, um, so it's to be positive. A door-to-door -door blessing is kind of the idea. Now, let's read the last three verses. Cindy, can I come back to you? Read 13, 14, and 15. You tell us what you really think, Jesus. <laughs> Notice that here. There are two responses. Acceptance or rejection. Um, notice that the success of the mission doesn't depend on how many respond. So it doesn't respond depend on the number of people that respond. It's just realize they're going to accept you or they're going to reject you. And he says, if they reject you, and it's really talking in the context of entire towns here, but if they reject you, take back that blessing of peace that you offered that town when you came in, which I find really intriguing because he says the judgment is coming. And he says... You're to do this very strange thing. What's the thing? Take off, literally, you took off your sandals, you clap them together, shake the dust off your feet. Leave the dirt from that town behind as a symbol of judgment. Now listen to this. I'm going to go to Acts 13.51. This is in Paul's ministry. Okay, Isn't it interesting? Now, now by the way, this was a cultural thing that they would do when a Jew left a Gentile city, they would clap their sandals together to say, I'm leaving this stuff behind. Okay. 
Jesus gives it a different context here in terms of acceptance or rejection. And here's what Paul does in Acts 13. Okay, they're working together. He's got companions with him. After the reading of the law, verse 15, and the prophets, the brethren, uh, the synagogue officials sent, um, wait a minute, went the wrong, wrong passage. Hold on, got to look at my notes here. Oh, 15 is not the same as 51. 1351, here we go again. Last, last couple of verses. But, okay, a, a persecution against Paul and Barnabas ensued in verse 50. But they shook off the dust of their feet and protested against them and went to Iconium. They left town. They're doing here, up in, in the 13th chapter of Acts, what Jesus had told the apostles to do back in Matthew 10. Shake the dust off your feet. Literally, in my notes, I began to think about Take off your sandals and treat that like a Gentile city. Even though it was not a Gentile city. Interesting. And then he begins to remind them in the 15th verse of judgment that's to come. It seemed like an offer too good to refuse until it was refused. The Chamber of Commerce in a place called Mercia, Spain, sponsored a contest called Shopping Against the Clock. The winner was going to be awarded a shopping spree worth a little bit over $7,000. The only catch was that the winner had to spend the money in less than three hours. Rhonda could do that in three minutes. <laughs> All 600 businesses were involved in the town, hoping that the promotion would boost interest in the local economy. More than 60,000 contestants entered, but when the winner was notified, she replied that she'd have to think about accepting it. Duh, you know? In the end, she declined, saying that she was just too busy to waste a morning shopping. <laughs> By contrast, the runner-up gladly accepted. Taking three hours out of her day, she ended up with jewelry and clothing and shoes and home decor and sunglasses and presents for her family and a, and a whole ham and nothing for her husband. Uh, you know, maybe the ham. <laughs> Jesus cautioned them against those who would refuse. Now, I'm going to say to you that our commission, I just got a couple minutes left. Our commission is the same as theirs. Really. Oh, I'm, I haven't performed too many resurrections in my life, okay? So the scope may be a little different. But the command is the same. Follow me. Follow me. And if I've, as I follow him, the idea here is doing what he showed me to do. When we were in our 20s, that seems like a really long time ago, and it was. We were in our 20s. My mother would sit in front of Rhonda, her best ever custard pie and Rhonda basically turned her nose up at it and said I'm not so sure I want to eat egg pie right right what? You didn't? But, but you declined you declined fast forward a few years after she had tasted it fast forward a few years I can hardly tell this story 
And my mother quit making custard pie because she said, Rhonda, you make it so much better than I do. That's being Sally's disciple. <laughs> you did what she did. She showed you what to do. Can you tell them this is my mom today? What you and I are called to do is follow Jesus and imitate that which he did. And that which he did is what that which we are to do. Go and make disciples. Now my question is, have you accepted that commission? All of us have a role to play in that. I, I'm going to tell you this, that I think, uh, I, I think it's really important that, that we all get in this business in some way. I remember when we first started Stephen Ministry at this church, I remember thinking, you know what, there are probably a lot of people sitting in a pew <clears throat> who would say, you know, I don't have any music talent. I can't play and I can't sing. I'm not really confident enough to stand in front of a group of people and be a teacher, nor, nor am I even really confident enough to, to lead a small group. But you know what? I can handle one-on-one. -on -one. I think I'm okay just woman to woman, man to man. That's what Jesus is calling us to do. To take what he has taught me and one on one or one on two or one on three, reproduce it in the lives of somebody else. Until the point where you will say to those that you're discipling, you know what? You need to go out and do this because you're much better at it than I am. That's the multiplication plan. Your commission is the same as theirs was. Go and make disciples.